Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast. I'm Chris Oates. This podcast is brought to you by One Nation Every Vote, a nonpartisan organization designed to bringing you stories and information about voting and why it matters. You can find out more about 1V at 1V.vote, that is O-N-E-V dot V-O-T-E. Today we're deviating slightly from the chronological nature of this podcast to address an issue that spans from the earliest days of the country to right up till today, voting rights and access to the ballot for Native Americans. Now, Native Americans were by and large not included in the electoral system of this country at its beginning. In fact, in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson mentions Native peoples, but he calls them merciless Indian savages. That's right. In the Declaration of Independence, you can look this up. It's not often talked about in the history of 1776, but the Declaration of Independence does cite Native Americans as merciless savages. They're only mentioned in the Declaration because the signers opposed Britain's policy against westward expansion that was meant to protect Native lands across the Appalachians. So while much of American history is a process of people trying to live up to the ideals captured in the Declaration of Independence, it's important to remember that that document calls for the displacement of those who were here before any of the settlers or colonists. So even though the names of 27 states are related to Native Americans and their languages, the earliest days in institutions of this country did not include them. And that story of non-inclusion and exclusion and displacement doesn't change much throughout a lot of the 1800s. If you have a chance to go to the National Museum of the American Indian on the Mall in Washington, D.C., I highly recommend it. It tells the history of Native Americans and the relationship between Native American tribes and the federal government incredibly well, and it is far better than we could do in one podcast episode. But for the purpose of this podcast and of voting rights in general, we should say that they did not come to all Native Americans until 1924, when the Snyder Act granted citizenship to Native Americans. Although, it's important to note, this act did not immediately provide equality in voting. And equality in voting doesn't even exist today. The data and the evidence on this point is clear. Only 66% of Native Americans and Native Alaskans who are eligible to vote are registered, compared to about 74% of non-Hispanic white people across the country. In Arizona, where there's a, a large Native population, in 2014, the last midterm elections, the average turnout uh, near reservations or on reservations was only 37%, with some places dropping below 20%, compared to a 48% turnout rate for the rest of the state. And just recently, the Supreme Court declined to overturn a voter ID law in North Dakota that will disproportionately affect Native Americans' abilities to vote. There are a lot of groups fighting to get everyone in North Dakota access to the ballot, uh, and there are a number of ways to support that the, those efforts. The Native American Voting Rights Coalition is a very good place to start. It's a nonpartisan alliance of groups dedicated to increasing Native Americans' ability to be included in the political process. You can search for them, and there's a lot of constituent groups, and you can find out uh, on that site how to get more involved with any of them. So to talk about this issue, about how Native Americans gained access to the ballot and how it is still being fought for, I spoke with Professor Paul Rosier of Villanova University. He's the author of Serving Their Country, American Indian Politics and Patriotism in the 20th Century, among many other works on Native American history in the United States. So I'm joined by Professor Paul Rosier of Villanova. Uh, Professor, thanks for being here. I guess to start off with, 
when the Declaration of Independence was signed, Native Americans had no voting rights and no citizenship. Uh, now that those do exist, when was the first time that that started to change? When was the first time that Native Americans became citizens and voters in the United States? Well, technically, the the first time that all Native people were eligible to vote was 1924, when Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act. Prior to that, there were various attempts to um, enfranchise Native people, but uh, decisions, Supreme Court decisions in 1876 uh, prohibited Native Americans from voting because they weren't defined as citizens uh, under the 14th Amendment. Then in 1887, you have the Dawes Act, which passed um, as a, a part of a broader assimilation program, and that gave Native people the right to uh, own property and fee simple, which would give them uh, citizenship rights. But even the individual Native people who um, earned that citizenship title were denied access to the polls. And so one of the broader problems, even with uh, the 1924 Citizenship Act, is that states, as they did in the American South, prohibited Native people through <clears throat> poll tax and other restrictive uh, voting measures. And these these kind of um, prohibitions lasted into the 1960s, especially in the American West, where you have sizable Native American populations. So I think there's a parallel with African Americans uh, trying to gain the vote, um, that they happened in different parts of the country. And was it uh, the American West simply because there were large numbers of potential voters, and so those politicians and candidates who didn't think they were going to win their votes thought if you suppress the vote, it's much easier to win re-election? I think part of that, and part of that is just the, the the general infrastructure of Jim Crow. Uh, we think of Jim Crow as a Southern thing, but it was really a national phenomenon, and it certainly affected Native people who were denied not only voting rights, but you know, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, and those kind of things. So it was a general uh, denial of civil rights, and voting rights are a part of that. And certainly the Voting Rights Act of 1964 provided the federal government some machinery to uh, uphold the citizenship laws. But again, that was the administration of the Voting Rights Act took, took a while um, to, to prosecute, as it did in the South. And despite the Voting Rights Act, the statistics show that uh, Native Americans and Native Alaskans are less likely to be registered to vote, uh, 66% compared to 74% of non-American whites. They're less likely to vote. They're less likely to have access to the ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are some of the major obstacles that are still outstanding for Native populations? Well, I first want to mention that it was after, just to back up a little bit with regard to the, the historical context, it was after World War II when you had a lot of veterans, uh, American Indian veterans coming back from European battlefields, coming back, not being able to vote, and this paradox of having gone abroad to secure the freedoms of Europeans coming back and not having those freedoms really uh, galvanized Native people. So that the kind of activism that we see in 2018, I think, was born in uh, the post-war period and what I found through my own research looking at Indian newspapers is that Native people said, we, if we're going to get what we deserve, we're going to have to vote, and we're going to have to create uh, a system um, that is going to 
kind of inculcate the desire to vote. What we saw after World War II was an increase in voting percentages. And the issues that remain, I think, are are largely due to pushback by states uh, in these western uh, Western areas, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Arizona. Part of it is the difficulty of getting people to the polls in some of these vast reservations. And some of the lawsuits that have been initiated in the last five uh, six years under the Voting Rights Act have been about pushing states to expand the number of polling places or provide um, an electronic measure you know, to allow people who don't have a car, don't have um, the health to get to these places. And we're talking having to travel something like 200 miles to get to a polling place. And for people who are poor, people who don't have access to a car, you know, that's a real barrier. There are some economic barriers that affect not only Native people, but um, poor Americans everywhere. But then there are these structural barriers of uh, creating an infrastructure of, of voting um, voting places on these reservations. Are there any uh, movements for mail-in ballots uh, on reservations? I know Washington State is entirely a mail-in ballot state. Yeah, that's a really good question, Chris. I think it was on the Navajo Nation. There was an effort, partly because of the lack of physical polling places to allow mail-in ballots, but uh, I don't know if that's advanced to the point where it's viable in 2018. But I think it's it's the more important issue is getting these state governments that have historically been hostile to native participation to you know, follow the law. Uh, unfortunately, I think it was in 2013 that <clears throat> there was room created in the Voting Rights Act to allow state governments to change their procedures. Since that time, a number of Native uh, voting rights coalitions have been trying to push back against those. Yes, since that Supreme Court decision in 2013, a number of states have have cut voting hours, they've cut uh, polling Mm -hmm. places, refused to add voting locations on reservations, or eliminated some language assistance services. The most recent case, of course, is North Dakota just... Last week, the Supreme Court, I think, upheld uh, the right of North Dakota to create a voter identification law, which is very difficult for Native people who are not really registered with the state. They might have a tribal identification card, but they may not have uh, state identification. So what are some of the movements and campaigns out there right now to increase turnout percentage and increased registration percentages. Are they focusing on specific aspects Mm -hmm. of that? Or is it a legal campaign to try to overturn certain state laws? Or is it more focused on driving up uh, access by getting people rides to the polls or getting them registered? Yeah, it's it's definitely both. There are a number of groups, including the Native American Rights Fund, which I think is most active, and they are affiliated with the Native American Voting Rights Coalition. There's a group called Four Directions, National Council of American Indians is another group. Uh, And I think one of their messages is that federal policy can have such an enormous influence on day-to-day life in Native communities. And we can remember that roughly 50% of Native people live on reservations. 50% are distributed in suburban and urban communities. But for those, especially on uh, reservations that are getting federal aid, health care, and so forth, you know, these are really important, uh, really important impacts. One of the directors for Four Directions uh, noted that 
the American Indians are really highly regulated, and they have a vested interest in some of these federal programs. And there has been historically an effort to so-called terminate federal sovereignty rights. So this is an ongoing issue. And it's that fear of termination that the federal government will get rid of their obligation to uh, maintain uh, Indian rights. And, and a lot of that comes from you know, senators out in the West who don't like the fact that Native people control millions of acres, some of which has valuable oil and gas, uranium, and those kind of things. So there's there's a there's a historical context, and then there's this kind of daily life context in which making sure that they have access to federal support uh, as well as their treaty rights, you know, that is a motivation for a lot of people. There's also a sense that in some states, Native people have a real impact. <clears throat> North Dakota, South Dakota, people can come together and identify the candidates that are not hostile to Indian rights. And, and in some states like North Dakota, South Dakota, the, the, the line between supporters and non-supporters is really pretty clear. So I think Native people in the last you know, 10, 15 years have become aware of their impact on some of these close elections. Kind of historically speaking, there's a, a big question, not only here in the United States, but in many areas that were colonized uh, with an indigenous population about the uh-huh. tension between uh, assimilation and creating, being involved in the democratic uh-huh. process. Well, that's a great question. And, and this is going to vary depending on where Native people are living. But some people clearly have decided to work outside of the American political system to focus just on their own communities. Percentages, I don't know. I don't really know enough about individual Native communities to be able to generalize. But there's there's a lot of ongoing you know hostility about being in a post-colonial um, system. And I, I think what you have is people who have worked more for global indigenous rights uh, through the United Nations and other multinational organizations, making it more of a, a human rights. Um, the example of the Dakota Access Pipeline is one where you have people linking up with other indigenous groups around the country to fight for issues that matter more to Native people than maybe other people. So I think there is a divide between the kind of U.S. system, participating in the U.S. system, and participating in a, in a multinational system. One thing that you know, I, I always emphasize is that Native people have a strong democratic tradition going back centuries before, <clears throat> before Europeans arrived in the Western Hemisphere. So I think what they have been doing is adopting some of their... Um, political systems to legislative, executive, judicial, and so forth as, you know, as part of the assimilation project. And there's still a question about how those um, political systems can uh, represent the rights of all Native citizens, just because we're talking about a diverse group of people. The other, the other issue that has been coming to the fore, I think, in uh, 2016 and 2018 is whether Native people themselves can become a political presence in their states and in their communities. There are some candidates running for electoral office in 2018. Not too many, but I think there's a sense that Native people can become more active in their own communities running for state as well as federal 
seats. Uh, there have been very few native senators. Uh, ben Nighthorse Campbell is the last uh, native person in the, in the Congress. So that would be the next step for some people is to take this energy uh, in the sense that they have to become involved in the process and actually run for office themselves. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions we have. Uh, are there any other points that you think uh, ought to be made? I think there's a lot of great energy in Indian country. Uh, I think I think once you had some of those uh, restrictive, uh, suppressive laws, I think it's become part of what people see as a broader effort to strip them of rights that they have fought for decades. Um, going back to the 19th century, the whole treaty rights movement is really at the heart of Native politics. The uh, effort, and in fact, a lot of people have fight in the military to preserve their right to be Indian. And so when you have some of these civil rights violations, it, it is tied to this broader historical context of the denial of the right to be Indian. So I think that's, you know, that's the positive part of this is that once you have these things, you're going to find a lot of pushback. You know, whether it's going to whether it's going to make a difference, I don't know. It really comes down to getting people out to vote. So I'm hoping that this podcast, as well as all of the amazing stuff that Native voting rights uh, activists are doing, is going to, to make a difference in November. Well, yeah, we hope so, too. Uh, so thank you very much for speaking with us, Professor Paul Rosier of Villanova. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Well, the fight for Native American voting rights is certainly not over. Across the country, there are issues and obstacles still at play today. Again, if you'd like to get involved, there are a number of groups working to ensure access to the ballot. I'd recommend that you check out the Native American Voting Rights Coalition to find a number of organizations working on this issue across the country. And for more information on voting in general and other stories about how voting matters, you can check out 1v.vote or follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're 1V underscore vote. On Facebook, One Nation Every Vote. On Instagram, 1V.vote. Thanks very much for listening. If you liked it, please let us know. Tell your friends and family. Give us a good rating. Every recommendation or mentions helps us spread these stories about voting and is hugely appreciated. The editor for this episode was Spencer Curry. The producer was Eve Gleason. I'm Chris Oates. Thanks, and see you next week. 